Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Why does somebody feel a certain way walking around at night? Are there biases that are already embedded in there to say, oh, a place is low income. Oh, it's more dangerous. Or, oh, you know, I'm in an unfamiliar area. This is more dangerous. I see more people of color. However it is that, that registers, triggers to me. Second of all, who are you asking that they would give you that information? A lot of these countries that are ranked are white English-speaking countries are ranked as the safest ones. Is that because you're asking white English-speaking people? Is it possible that a person of color would not feel safe in one of those countries because there's such a minority? This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Beth Santos. She is the founder and CEO of Wonderful a global lifestyle brand and inclusive community of thousands of travelers and travel content creators. Wonderful reaches over 45,000 women each year through a thriving online membership network, local chapter events in 50 cities, global summits, and small group trips. In 2014, Wonderful launched the Women in Travel Summit, a leading event for women and gender-diverse travel creators to use their voices to champion change in the travel industry. Wonderful is also the creator of the Moving Forward Anti-Racism Town Hall for the Travel Industry, as well as the first anti-oppression toolkit for travel and culture creators. Wonderful is also the creator of the annual Bessie Awards to honor women of impact in travel and the creator of Wander Fest, the first major outdoor festival for women travelers. Beth was named one of the 17 changemakers shaping the future of the travel industry by Business Insider. And she was recognized as one of the top 100 travel bloggers in the USA by the Obama administration. And when she's not traveling, she maintains a home base in Boston with her husband and two daughters. Beth, welcome to the show. 
Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me, Matt. And can you from now on do that every time I wake up in the morning? Because I just feel like so pumped up right now. Well, you deserve to feel pumped up because you are doing absolutely amazing things that I'm so excited to dive into. But let's just set the scene and talk about where we are and the fact that we have agreed to make this a wine-induced interview in the middle of the afternoon, mind you. Not even the evening. So props to us for that. Um, I am actually based in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina today. And I have opened a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon from Chile that I will be drinking through during this episode. But where are you today and what are you drinking, Beth? Oh, my God. I am in Boston in in the city of Boston, Massachusetts. I am much less fancy than you, Matt. I am drinking a rosé that comes out of a can. Yes. Down East Cider, <laughs> which is a Boston local company, they got canned they got, made canned wine. It didn't work because everyone got way too drunk on it. And so they just gave it away to a bunch of people they knew who planned events. And so I have like pallets of this canned rosé and I am just enjoying it myself today. That is amazing. Well, I know you refrigerated it in advance of this interview, so I appreciate you preparing <laughs> to come prepared to the Maverick Show interview for this uh, climate and environment, and hopefully this will improve your podcast experience. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Beth, I want to start off just by saying how impressed and inspired that I am by the extent to which you and Wonderful have chosen to permanently center intersectional anti-oppression politics in your travel content and your community building. And I think it's just Aww. so important. And I think you are such a standout in the industry for that. So I just want to open us up by appreciating you for that. Oh, thank you, Matt. No, I appreciate that. So I'm curious about your background. I mean, a little bit about your backstory. And as you share a little bit, if you could, about where you grew up and all of that, I am curious, how did your social and political consciousness develop? What were sort of the origins of that when you think back? Yeah, that is a great question to kick off. And I'll tell you a little bit about the origin story for me, which is also kind of coinciding with the origin story of Wonderful. I am a Portuguese-American. My father's family is from Portugal. My mother is a whole mix of different things, kind of typical American story. And I grew up in New England, went to Wellesley College and studied art history. Graduated in 2008, which was a terrible time to graduate. And on top of that, a terrible time to graduate with an art history degree because nobody was hiring. And if you wanted to be a museum curator, that's about all you could do with an art history degree. And so what did I do with that? I had studied abroad in Portugal to reconnect with my roots. I had an amazing amazing year where I came out of it just really, really fluent and ended up moving to DC after college and working for the embassy of Portugal. And that's when I started to get really involved in not just international relations, but diplomacy, and then eventually international development. And I think that's where I really found my niche for a long time, which was not just traveling. I, I don't even think travel was a thing I thought about so much. I was traveling to do certain things. And I loved 
going to places and being very active there. And so I think that was kind of the beginning of where it all started. I mean, it was living in D.C. I know you've done time in D.C. I say done time because it's literally like we do time in D.C. (laughs) And was super involved in like the incredible cultural undertones of D.C. The thing that makes that city different from other cities in the U.S. is that people are so temporary there. And because we're all so temporarily there, we're all really like freshly from the places that we came from. So we all like really embody the places that we're from when we're all together in D.C. And because of that, it had this really cool, like very vibrant, like West African hip hop scene. And it had like this really cool Latino culture and it had a little bit of Portuguese culture. And it was just a really neat way to feel like I was living in the world and started to do a lot of work in the international development space. And because of my Portuguese, which... A lot of people don't know that Portuguese is actually still spoken in five African countries. And one of them, a small country called Sao Tome and Principe, is also where I ended up living on and off for two years. I met a friend of a friend at a picnic in D.C. He used to be the head of the Peace Corps in Sao Tome. Like, this is how this stuff just happens. He was like, you're Portuguese-American. You speak Portuguese. I live in a Portuguese-speaking country. If you're ever looking for something to do, I have an extra spare bedroom and can give you three meals a day if you want to work for my nonprofit. And I, at 22 years old, was like, that sounds like a good idea. And just got up and moved to Sao Tome, country of 160,000 people, two island nation in the Gulf of Guinea off the West Coast of Africa. And I think that was really the beginning of being so hyper immersed in the world. And, you know, is that really where this social consciousness that you that you say is starting I don't know. I think it's kind of over time that that really evolved. And I also have to say that it's not just me, but an incredible, wonderful team. Our team is based in a lot of people with big social justice backgrounds who have taught me a lot. And when it has come to speaking up about politics, speaking up about what the travel industry should be doing, I've learned a lot from them. And it's really steered the direction of what Wonderful is. So there, there's like a whole bunch that I'll throw at you right there. But it wasn't a one-time thing. And it wasn't a, I've always been this way my whole life. It's been in my travels that I've built this awareness and in bringing in other people's voices to help really guide that direction. That's so amazing. And I relate to so much of what you've said in terms of my own journey. One of the things that I want to start with is your study abroad experience, because you're a Portuguese American, I'm Irish American, and we both made the decision to go back to those countries to study abroad. I went to Dublin. I lived there for a year. I studied at Trinity College. You went to Portugal. And I'm curious if you can share how that experience was for you in, you know, at that age, at that time. And what was that like? Oh, it it changed everything for me. I mean, it completely redirected my whole life course. And I mean that like I am not exaggerating in any way. I when I was growing up, I actually had very little interest in my identity as a Portuguese American. I thought Portuguese people were weird and the food was kind of smelly. And I thought it was strange that they sat down like under vines all day and just like enjoyed the day, you know, like just things that are like the typical kind of Portuguese immigrant story. But then something changed for me in high school and I was very curious about it. And my father actually has a very typical story of Portuguese Americans in the 50s. He was actually born in the U.S. to a family of recent Portuguese immigrants, his sister included. And in an effort to assimilate, 
they, even though his first language was Portuguese, they really tried to not speak it to him very much. So they spoke it to each other and it was his first language in terms of comprehension, but he had a hard time speaking it back. And my whole upbringing, honestly, I thought my dad just chose to not show the side to me. I thought he was just, I was like, hey dad, teach me Portuguese. And he said, no. And I'd be like, why? And I didn't realize that actually he couldn't. And so it was later in high school and then in college that I sort of thought to myself, if I want to understand this part of my background, I have to go there myself. And I ended up, I found the one study abroad program in Portugal, which was the at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, way to go, University of Wisconsin. It was the only program that was going to Portugal during the academic year. It went to the University of Coimbra, which is a beautiful university town that actually used to be the palace of the king. So where you're taking classes is where the king used to walk around in his palace, like, and now you're taking classes there. And I was supposed to stay for six months and I stayed for a year. And in my first few months there, I actually stayed with family, family that I had met once before, but never understood them. At the beginning of my study abroad experience, I did not speak any Portuguese. They did not speak any English. And it was like this really weird, crazy period of time, right? Of just adjusting. And I think as somebody, and and this might have been how you felt too, studying abroad in Ireland, but I felt a lot of pressure to really know that part of myself. Like it was this, if I had been catching up with 20 years of information that I hadn't received, and I really wanted to digest as much as I could, the language and the culture and the geography and the history and everything. And I, I put a lot on myself to do that. But it was like I just connected with this part of me that I didn't even know existed. And after that, I truly say it set a different course for my entire life because that became a huge part of my identity and still is today. And how did that impact the rest of your life? So what from that experience and that evolution of your identity, how did that impact you moving forward? Yeah, well, first of all, it opened up travel for me. I mean, that was really my first time traveling alone. And I think it gave me that when you have that first really, really meaningful trip, especially by yourself, you feel like a citizen of the world. You feel like a real representative of the globe. And that's how I felt. I felt so much more of that citizen of the world mentality than I ever had. And and I really loved it. And I think the other thing too is that I had taken Spanish in high school, but I think it's a whole other thing to speak the language of your ancestors in a lot of ways. And when I came back home from Portugal, I got very involved in the Portuguese and Portuguese American culture. I mentioned I worked at the Embassy of Portugal. I also took a job at Voice of America, which is a a huge international broadcaster. I had a show in Portuguese to the Portuguese-speaking countries of Africa that I ran um, in my early 20s. And it was those things that it was through that experience in Portugal and through the language I had acquired that I then took this very international direction with my life and started to connect with people on a different level. And I think from then it was, you know, it's always kind of starting with language and starting with my language ability and then into, you know, job opportunities, travel opportunities, and just ways that I see myself that I never would have had otherwise. And did you connect with Brazil as well? I did. So actually, after D.C., I lived in North Carolina for a little while. Then I moved to Chicago, where I worked for Rotary International. 
and I was a grant officer. I was what I like to call a venture capitalist for the nonprofit world, which is what a grant officer is. And I basically worked in Latin America and the Caribbean, primarily Brazil. And so I worked with Rotary Clubs all around Brazil. I traveled there regularly to evaluate their service projects for sustainability, for local impact. And Portugal Portuguese and Brazilian Portuguese are very different in pronunciation. (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) I like to compare this to if Brazilian Portuguese were American English. Portugal Portuguese is, and this is where most people try to fill in and say, it's like British English. And I said, no, no, it's like deep Scottish. It's like when an American hears somebody from Scotland speaking, we're like, what the fuck are they saying? But when a Scottish person hears an American, they understand us perfectly because there's American movies and TV shows. And that's kind of how it is with Portugal Portuguese and Brazilian Portuguese. So I would go to Brazil, speak my Portugal Portuguese. Everyone thought I was from Portugal because that accent is just so thick. But I had a great time. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time going down there and doing it. And I think that was where my kind of international development art history, to international relations, to diplomacy, to international development, to starting an international company kind of took its course. That's amazing. So did you work on speaking with the Brazilian accent when you were in Brazil? Or did you just resign yourself to the Portuguese (laughs) accent? You're like, I'm from Portugal. This is me. I'm going to do my thing. It's funny because I think accents are so funny because it's like if you as an American traveled to London You hear other people speaking to you with a British accent. Maybe you want to reply with a British accent, but it would just sound like you're mocking them if you did, you know? And it kind of felt the same way in Brazil where I was so ingrained with my Portugal Portuguese that even though I'm actually an American, actually, I don't speak as well now, but it had gotten to a point where my Portugal Portuguese was almost completely flawless. Like native speaking Portuguese person could not tell that I had an accent. And so because I was so connected to my Portuguese side, it felt a little bit like that going to Brazil. Like if I put on a Brazilian accent, it would just be like putting one on. And so I just kind of leaned into my Portuguese accent and just went with it. And it was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. The only thing that I found, because I spent time in Brazil before Mm -hmm. I ever went to Portugal, and I thought, you know, I think this would be a great idea to spend a couple months in Brazil and then go directly to Portugal, because then I'll have the kind of Portuguese language immersion, right? (laughs) And I'm only in Brazil for a couple months. I'm like working on my basic phrases and stuff like that. And by the way, in Brazil, for folks that have not been to Brazil, I found that unless you are staying in some super touristy like hotel situation, which I intentionally was not, you better know some Portuguese because there is not a lot of English spoken at all. Like you need to know some basic stuff to get by. And so then after that, I go to Portugal and I'm in Lisbon for like, you know, a month or so. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to try to use my Portuguese. I like roll into restaurants. I'm like, boa noite, you know, in my Brazilian (laughs) accent. And they would literally just look at me and they'd respond, "Uh, good evening, sir. Would you like a table for two? Like they would just speak to me in English. And it was probably some combination of like one, who is this white dude with a Brazilian accent? And number two, my Portuguese was just so bad. They're like, let's just skip it, dude, and speak English. Thinking he can come in here and speak Brazilian Portuguese because we don't have our own Portuguese, which is the original one, you know, like. (laughs) But it's true. I mean, it really is different. I think people don't realize that until they hear it. But like Portugal Portuguese is like a very Slavic. I'll give you an example. My last name, Santos. In Brazilian Portuguese, it's Santos. In Portugal's Portuguese, it's Santos. 
So it's like very like closed, very garbled. And we basically don't pronounce our vowels at all. And hard. I think it's hard for like an untrained ear to understand what they're saying. So props to you for even trying though, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Put in the effort, you know? Um, (laughs) But yeah, and Portugal is actually one of my all-time favorite European countries. And Brazil may literally be my favorite country in the world, bar none. I mean, I just, I revere it. Like, I mean, I've been multiple times and each time I go back and I go to a different part because it's so enormous, you know? So my experience in Rio, the first time I went to Rio, I was there for two months and I literally didn't leave Rio to see any other part of Brazil because I was like, I don't want to miss a day of this. Like who would leave Rio, you know? And then all of a sudden I'm traveling around. I'm meeting travelers that are telling me like Sao Paulo is their favorite city in the world. I was like, you've been to Rio. They're like, yeah. I was like, what? And so then I go to Sao Paulo and my mind is blown again with a totally different type of city. And then I start going to the, I go back again and I go to the Northern beach towns and Uh, it is a magical place. Can't Mm -hmm. say enough about Brazil, but I am really interested. I have never been to Sao Tome and Principe. I've been to West Africa. I've even been to Cabo Verde. Oh, so close. So So close. close. Right there. But I haven't been to Sao Tome and Principe. And you spent a lot of time there. So I'm really interested in terms of that next step for you. After you studied abroad, you learned Portuguese, you reconnected with that part of your culture. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, and, and Sao Tome, it's amazing. A lot of people have not been there, and I'm not surprised because if you look up, and a lot of people have not heard of Sao Tome, actually. I've had full conversations with Nigerians, for example, who have been like, this country doesn't exist. And I'll go, it's literally off the coast of your country. And it's so small and oftentimes just left off of maps. It's one of the world's smallest economies. I mean, literally like number one, number two there. And I mentioned it at the time was a country of 160,000 people. It has a fascinating history. It was colonized by the Portuguese. It was populated by the Portuguese. And it was populated with enslaved people from Cape Verde. So it was uninhabited up to that point. And Portugal, who, you know, had been really dominating in a bad way, the world, discovering the world, and had taken, had enslaved Cape Verdeans, basically promised them free life if they came and worked for pay in Sao Tome. A bunch of people opted in. They were like, that sounds better than what I've got here. They went on a ship, came over to Sao Tome, got there, and the Portuguese basically went, gotcha. We weren't actually going to pay you after all. We're just going to enslave you again. And that's what started Sao Tome. And so Sao Tome starts from not a great history, but it is an incredible country of predominantly a lot of people from Cape Verdean descent, a lot from Angolan descent now, other places too. And its largest exports are coffee, chocolate, and fish. I think those are the three. I mean, it's literally still like very small economy. You get there to the airport and there's not a whole lot of hospitality industry there. So you better know somebody to pick you up. And in fact, that's what I did. So I mentioned I met somebody, a friend of a friend, a picnic. He was the director of the Peace Corps there. The Peace Corps pulled out in the 90s because they had kind of achieved their mission. Again, Sao Tome, because it's so geographically separated from continental Africa, they actually had avoided a lot of the challenges that the rest of the continent had gone through. And they'd also had extremely successful public health campaigns. So they were able to do things like eradicate malaria, deaths from malaria under the age of five because of just these incredible public health campaigns that everybody knew everybody and they were so isolated. 
So when I decided to go there, I was working for, his name was Ned's nonprofit that he started after the Peace Corps pulled out called Step Up, South May and Principe Union for Promotion. And I show up and my first day in country, I have no idea what I'm doing, never been to anywhere in Africa before. And Ned says to me, there's a middle school down the street. I think they're having some trouble with some computers or something. Do you want to go and just say you're representing this nonprofit and come and check it out? And so I was like, sure. Literally first day in country, had been at the house for maybe an hour, fueled up, took a taxi to the Saint-Jean primary school, secondary school, and the principal is standing outside waiting for me. And like, keep in mind, I didn't think anybody knew I was in this country. And the principal has been standing there for hours. And he says, we've been waiting for you. Come inside. And I go in and there is a classroom of a hundred students. Literally everyone has been waiting for me to arrive. Me not knowing what my job is being 22 years old. And I meet the class, you know, it's like a few classes mixed together, the teacher standing in the back. And then the principal goes and takes me to his office and he says, I'm so glad you're here. We have this problem. And he shows me lined in the back of his office, which is, by the way, the only room in the school with a door. And it is lined top floor to ceiling, you know, side to side with brand new mint condition computers. He has a hundred of these laptops and he's going we don't know what to do. We don't have security for these. We're afraid that we're compromised right now, that somebody might come and try to take them maybe violently. We don't even know how to use them. The computers are all in English. They were donated by a university. It was actually the University of Illinois that had donated these laptops. They'd gone down and done a quick training for two weeks. They left and the school was kind of left like, huh? We don't know what to do. And so for some reason, they heard I was coming and they they just assumed that I was with this organization, even though I wasn't. And they were like, fix this. And that's what I did in Sao Tome is from day one, I just learned how to use the computer. Turns out they were from One Laptop Per Child, an MIT project that created these super durable, energy-efficient laptops to be deployed by the tens of thousands to the developing world. It was this kind of really crazy pie-in-the-sky idea that mostly failed, but also kind of worked in other ways. And I created these laptop learning programs and I taught these kids how to use the internet and we did some light programming classes. And it was a really weird and wacky experience that I just kind of dove into and look back on with mixed reviews, definitely with more international development experience now under my belt. But that's kind of where it all started. And from that moment, it was like I, I wasn't even a tourist for a second in Sao Tome. It was like the from the moment I got there, I had a house, a job. I got my motorcycle license. I learned how to ride my bike to school every day. And I just lived the life of as much as I knew, you know, a local Sao Tomean. And how did Wonderful begin? What were the origins of that? Because that goes all the way back to Sao Tome, right? It does. It's actually where I started. And it was in that time, again, like I had studied abroad, but this was a whole different kind of showing up in a place and just traveling there and being immersed. And I had a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions. And really, even now, to be honest, you look up women in travel on Google and the types of information you find and the narrative that you're served is either A, 
what I like to call the eat, pray, love narrative, which is like, I'm going to wear this really timeless bikini and like travel to gorgeous places and eat tons of pasta and find some like good looking person to spend my life with, et cetera. That's the eat, pray, love story for the solo female traveler. And then there's also like the taken story, which is like, you're going to get stolen somewhere and your family's going to be looking for you and you'll be left for dead. That's the other story. And we're not really given any sort of middle ground. And I had a lot of questions about gender norms and expectations, how to dress appropriately to be respectful, power structures. Now, as a mother, you know, maternity and pregnancy abroad, having small children abroad. And by the way, the answers to these questions change wherever you go and change over time. And there wasn't a lot of information out there. And so I did what I knew best, which was to just write about it. And I started a blog. It was called Let's Go Girl. And I was sharing my stories of living overseas. I posted on Craigslist a couple of job descriptions for other people to share their stories. And I kind of built an online magazine of women sharing their experiences as women of the world. And, you know, through that kind of solving this problem of not just lack of tips and advice, but also lack of that emotional support network and that community for people for whom travel was this huge part of who they were, but they had been told by somebody else at some point in their lives not to do it. I want to ask if you can go a little bit deeper into sort of breaking down and deconstructing the dominant narrative around travel safety, especially as applied to solo female travelers. One of the quotes that I want to read from one of your blog posts, because you've done a lot of amazing content on this, is you say that one example of this is a commonly used question of how safe women feel walking alone at night in different cities. This question is a breeding ground for stereotypes centered around race and class that may have nothing to do with the actual reality of that city. This question often leads to automatically flagging lower income communities, which tend to also be communities of color. Can you expand on that? Oh, absolutely. So let's take a step back here. The other thing about Wonderful, it's not just helping women travel the world, it's helping all women travel the world. And that all is very important because when we talk about solo female travel, oftentimes we're talking about young, able-bodied, white, Western solo female travelers. And oftentimes they're going into countries that are not those, you know, that are places of color, that are non-Western. And I think that's very important for us to talk about this and to lean in to the different intersections of travelers and their experiences and not only your own travels, but how you as a traveler have an impact on the places that you go. You know, looking at travel is two sides here as well, right? It's not just somebody visiting a place and sort of one-sidedly taking things away from it. It's also the unique impact that you're having through your spending, through your presence, through how you interact with people, through what accent of Portuguese you choose to use when you're traveling somewhere. All of that, it affects other people too, right? So there's impact there on both sides. So let's talk about that narrative being kind of only focused on this very tiny niche of traveler to begin with and the need to expand upon it. Now, a lot of times, I mean, this is clickbait. If you look up solo female travel, there are thousands, thousands of articles on places for solo female travelers to go, places to not go, you know, world's rankings of safest countries. And 
there's so many problems with that. And the first problem with it is that you can't rank an entire country. It's not possible. I mean, try ranking the United States of America. You know, try putting Chicago next to um, the backwoods of Maine, next to Hawaii. Places are so different in terms of everything, in terms of geography, in terms of culture. So you can't rank entire countries. But also, a lot of these statistics that are used are subjective statistics. They are just like you were reading. It's, you know, rank how you felt walking around at night. Well, why does somebody feel a certain way walking around at night? Are there biases that are already embedded in there to say, oh, a place is low income. Oh, it's more dangerous. Or, oh, you know, I'm in an unfamiliar area. This is more dangerous. I see more people of color. However it is that, that registers triggers to me. Second of all, who are you asking that they would give you that information? A lot of these countries that are ranked are white English-speaking countries are ranked as the safest ones. Is that because you're asking white English-speaking people? Is it possible that a person of color would not feel safe in one of those countries because there's such a minority? You have to start thinking about the poll takers as people too. And what is the demographic of that person being surveyed? Because all of us have our own different lived realities and lived experiences. And so there's a lot that's really problematic. And I think it's so tempting to try to take a shortcut and just say, you know, especially for because in solo female travel, safety is a huge priority. And the reason that a lot of people come to our community is because they're looking for resources and support or their family are worried. At any point in time, 40% of our community at one point has canceled a trip because of safety, because of their own safety concerns, because of family concerns. So it is a real problem, this concern about safety and this fear. But how much of that fear is real? And how much is it projected on us by the media? How much does it of it does it come from a, a place of bias and a place of stereotypes that we've built? How much does it come from one very specific opinion without actually surveying larger populations or looking at real data? And because of that, I'd say the vast majority of those articles should either be A, taken off the web, or B, the writers of them should really consider what you're saying when you're putting that stuff out there. Yeah, I think that's super important. I remember a few years back, uh, and this, of course, didn't get a lot of coverage in the American media for precisely the reasons that you're saying, but the government of the Bahamas issued a travel advisory to the citizens of the Bahamas saying that our citizens should be advised that it is dangerous to go to the United States because you could be assaulted or murdered by the police. Yes, I do remember that. Yep. There's that fear of the unknown that plays in, especially with Americans, I think, as we think anything outside of the U.S. is dangerous. But you have to also look at the statistics of our own country, because it might be that you're more likely to be attacked in my home city of Boston than a place that I'm traveling to. We automatically think that the unknown is like more dangerous. It might not be. And places in our own home could be more dangerous for other people. So absolutely. The other one I'll tell you about, and it was actually the whole, one of the things that really pushed, you know, we have these moments that kind of push us to really lean into our startups and lean into our businesses. And this one moment for me was in 2013, the New York Times and a number of other publications published the story of a woman named Sarai Sierra, who was a mother of two from, I think, Staten Island, who went to Turkey and was killed there. 
I remember this because I remember reading this article of, of the story, you know, woman reported missing, then we find out she was killed. And you scroll down to the comments. This is back when we didn't know not to read comments. Now we know not to do that. But scroll down to the comments and the comments are like, what kind of husband would let his wife travel alone to Turkey? <laughs> or like, what kind of mother would leave her children and travel by herself and like, you know, basically saying she deserved it. And that just, it just blew my mind because here we were, a woman is dead and we're literally saying like, she shouldn't have gone. She's a bad mother. You know, she should have stayed by her husband. What kind of story are we telling women if that's the thing? Not like, why would a person kill somebody? That should be the first question we're asking. Why did that person kill somebody and how do they get, you know, punished for it or whatever? It was like she had made the wrong choice by leaving her children behind. That just got me so angry. And I think that it was what had kickstarted this whole because there is there is so much we expect from travelers and there's so much we think women are supposed to do and say and feel when they travel. And it is not considering the reality of their needs. And on top of that, the realities of variety of intersections of women and not just, you know, and by the way, in that same town, four Turkish women were also killed that weekend, but they got no press. And it was the American, it was the white American who had gotten all the press. And there's a lot of problems with that too, in a society that really... I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Elevates the narrative of white women traveling alone and the things that happen to them. Well, the other thing that I want to dive a little bit deeper into that you mentioned is this sort of narrative that homogenizes the dynamics of an entire country. I have actually just pulled up the U.S. State Department Travel Advisory website, and I want to just read this to you, especially because I know that you and I both have a lot of profound love and appreciation for West Africa and West African culture and people and all of that. And I spent about three months in West Africa in 2019. And one of the places that I was most excited about going that I did go and had an amazing time was in Nigeria. And I went to Lagos mm -hmm. uh, for about a month. Uh, then I went to Ghana and Senegal and the Ivory Coast and other places. But I spent at least a month in Lagos. And the whole time I was traveling with female friends of mine as well that we were going through Nigeria. But I want to just read you this. When I pull up the State Department travel advisory, you know, what do the State Department say about Nigeria? For the entire country, level three, reconsider your travel. And then when I read the country summary, now I want also just 
to contextualize this for people, I'm kind of just doing this on the spot. I hadn't even planned to do this, but I want to contextualize for people that Nigeria is by far the largest country on the continent of Africa. I think it's something around 15, 15% of the entire continent lives in Nigeria and Lagos is the largest city on the continent of Africa. So that's just for context. Now, here's what the State Department website says. This is the country summary of the entire country for Nigeria. It says, violent crime, such as armed robbery, assault, carjacking, kidnapping, hostage-taking, banditry, and rape is common throughout the country. Kidnappings for ransom occur frequently, often targeting dual national citizens that have returned to Nigeria for a visit, as well as U.S. citizens with perceived wealth. Kidnapping gangs have also stopped victims on interstate roads. Terrorists continue plotting and carrying out attacks in Nigeria, and it goes on and on from there. And these are generalities about the entire country, resulting in the entire country having a level three, reconsider your travel, basically don't go to Nigeria. What do you say to that? Like, when you read that, does that make you want to go anywhere? No, it makes me want to go home and crawl into a little hole. And it is terrifying. And I know I have love for the State Department, actually. I've met some incredible people that work there. And I know they want to encourage travel. They really do. And But these tools are not doing them a service. And and for the State Department, which is the number one like diplomacy organization, right? You would think that you would want to have more specific data. And I think that yeah, there's a lot missing here. And it's terrifying. I mean, I've seen in a lot of these rankings, I've also seen um, overall rankings of, you know, the incarceration rate, for example. Well, if you're judging a country based on incarceration rate, you have to look at the United States. I mean, we have the most and people are still coming here, you know? So I think sometimes this data is used to, in a way that is incredibly misleading. And it's also not taking into consideration. The other thing it's not taking into consideration is that it's suggesting that we all have the same concerns. And somebody I had written in the article that you quoted, I said, there are certain people for whom different places are going to have a different impact for them. If you're Muslim, if you are a person with a physical disability, it might be harder or easier for you to go to other places based on the accessibility there, based on anti-Muslim law or culture there. If you're a Black person in the U.S., you might not want to go to some U.S. states right now. I've had a lot of people who have said to me that they won't go to certain places in their own home country. And these broad strokes are such huge generalizations that it becomes really hard to actually separate the reality of the data and for it to be useful. And we have to kind of pick that apart. And I think it's important for us. It's hard for us to to take the time to actually weed out what information is useful. And I think we have a responsibility to do that for the people who are reading these articles because they're coming to these articles because they're looking for a quick answer. And we have to explain that those quick answers don't exist, that every place has its challenges and every place has its strengths. And um, and you have to look at this more than just, hey, let's rank every country by most to least safe to visit for women in general because all women are the same. It's just absurd. So. Now that we have sort of deconstructed and broken down a lot of the problems with these narrative, what, in your opinion, 
is the appropriate sort of nuanced approach to looking into and discussing and assessing safety when traveling and not just for women, but for anybody that is going to travel? I think the best thing that you can do, first of all, let me say there's no perfect way. Everybody's perspective is going to be different, again, based on your history, based on your identity, based on what you're looking for, based on what is safety to you and not. And then based on that culture's politics, based on who you happen to encounter walking down the street on any particular day, you know, if they're friendly, not friendly, they speak, whatever it is. And so I think that's the first thing. And the second thing, by the way, is to keep in mind that Going back to a lot of those rankings, when they talk about friendliness, again, that's like a very Western thing that, you know, you should be like a certain level of friendly, you know, or talkative or something when you're interacting with somebody. If you're not friendly, it's like a bad thing or whatever. But what should we do? So this is partially why Wonderful exists, because our goal is to create a space where you can show up into any airport around the world and instantly have access to somebody who can guide you, right? Somebody who can take you out for a cup of coffee, who can host you in her home, who can give you advice. I think the people who know the most about a place are the people who are from there and the people who live there. And the best thing that we can do is meaningfully connect travelers with locals who can provide that guidance, who can provide that context, who can give real live information about the place that they live in. And of course, everyone is subject to bias. Everybody has their own subjectivity, so nothing is perfect. But I think you're going to get the closest information to people who are actually there, not people who have traveled there for a little bit, not people who have, you know, spent a little time there, people who actually live there. And and I think that's a really key component to what we do is recognizing that we all may be travelers, but everybody is from a place as well. And who better to get that information from than someone who can give you a little bit of that context? Yeah, I love that. I love that you provide that as well with wonderful. I mean, one of the things, I mean, going back to the Nigeria thing, right, in terms of planning that trip is that I knew Nigerians that lived and were based in Lagos, right? Mm-hmm. And I had also known a number of people that had been there, but I knew people that lived there, right? And so when you read something like that to the State Department, you're like, wait a minute, you know, and then you're juxtaposing <laughs> it with what you know. This country is the, the heartbeat of Sub-Saharan Africa. This is the center of the Afrobeats and the music scene and the film scene and Nollywood and all of these things that are coming out of uh, Nigeria with this amazing artistic creation and these music pulsing through the streets and all this kind of stuff. I was like, that's what I want to see. Why does this... Website that I'm reading just talk about the opposite of that and all of this stuff. Like there's some, there's two different types of things being represented here. So what is the actual situation, right? And of course, as you mentioned, the actual situation is complex and nuanced and not one simple thing. But to talk to people there that are from there that live there and all of that. So I love that you are providing that with wonderful. The other thing I want to ask, just to sort of build on this, is of what we're talking about is the concept that you have written about um, in terms of understanding travel as a political act. And I want to just read a clip from your one of your blog posts on that topic. And you say, we believe that as travelers, we must consistently interrogate our privilege. We must question how our presence affects the places we travel to and move through. We also believe that as creators in positions of relative power, we have a responsibility to use our platforms to also ask and respond to those questions. Can you talk a little bit more about this concept of traveling as a political act? 
Absolutely. And this relates so well to your last question, because one thing I wanted to say to follow up on that, too, was, yes, there's these solutions for travelers as well. But remember, the industry isn't just the travelers, right? We also have the travel companies and we have, in the last 20 years, content creators and influencers and small business owners. And I think content creators have a very high responsibility to talk about these places and a challenge because content creators aren't from all the places that they're writing about. And so there comes a time when we need to know when is the right time to take a step back and to give somebody else's voice that limelight on our platforms, right? Know when is the time for you to speak about something and when is the time for somebody else to speak about something? Whose voice are we giving to talk about this? And so I think when I talk about travel being a political act, when we think about travel, a lot of us think about it as an escape, right? It's it's a vacation. It's a beautiful sunset. It's a picture that we took and posted on Instagram of like this delicious meal that we ate. We don't like to think about all of the stuff behind that. But whenever you go into a place, you are automatically signing up for however that country is run. Everything, the thousands of years of history, hundreds of years of history that have accumulated up to this point to get you whatever you're eating based on import-export regulations and politics and employment law and your own passport. And if your passport is able to go to a place or not, think of the so many people who have to get a visa every time they want to go somewhere compared to how relatively easy it is for an American to go pretty much wherever we want to go, having that passport privilege. When you travel to a place, you are in few other industries. Do you spend so much money in one experience as you do in travel? When we travel, we spend thousands of dollars, right? We buy the flight, we buy the hotel, the tour, the restaurant, all of those things. We spend thousands of dollars. And this is very different from buying like, you know, a pen at the drugstore or whatever. Because of that, you know who else spends thousands of dollars? Investors, startup investors. They're also spending thousands of dollars. You are literally an investor in the travel ecosystem every time you travel. And you are voting with your dollars of how you want things to be run, how you want people to be paid, how you want communities to be represented, taken care of, or or not taken care of. You are voting for how you want the treatment of animals, the treatment of the environment. You are voting for the leadership that's there and the government policy that has gone up to that point. I mean, everything. And because of that, you have to be very conscious about how you're spending that money and where that money is going. And it can be tiring and it can be really exhausting, but I think it's also really important for us to have much more of that awareness as we're not just travelers sort of passively taking things in and not playing any part. We are actively supporting the communities that we're going to. And this also, one thing I didn't really talk about in that article was how this relates to volunteerism. I mean, again, coming from the space of international development and, um, and, and that world, you know, I used to do a lot of volunteerism. And the thing that I learned over time actually working in international development is sometimes the best thing you can do for an economy is to just go there and be a tourist and spend money there. It's not going and trying to build something or trying to donate a bunch of hairbrushes or whatever. It's actually going and just 
investing in the things that are working and encouraging more of that and spending your money and keeping the economy going. And I think that's a really important part of it all. So it it happened, you know, this article came after we spoke up about Black Lives Matter and we had a lot of people, we had a lot of unsubscribes. So we really learned who valued our community and who was not right for it. And we got a lot of responses of what does this have to do with travel? And we were like, what does this not have to do with travel? Travel is your place in the world. It's how you interact with other people. It's your own identity. It's how entire countries are run, how entire economies are run. You know, this has everything to do with travel. And if we can't look into our own selves and challenge our own country, what are we doing going into other people's countries? So it's absolutely important. And I think something that we all need to do more of. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think the Black Lives Matter statements in terms of culling and curating your client base was one of the best things that ever happened because... I mean, same thing with us, right? It's like I own a real estate brokerage and we help people buy cash flowing rental properties in the United States from anywhere in the world. And we built that as a location independent business. And I run that business as I travel the world. And we issued a statement saying that we Maverick Investor Group stand in unconditional solidarity with the Black community. And furthermore, we are committed in every way that we can be, including financially. And we're going to donate 10% of all of our net revenue to causes that support the dismantling of institutionalized white supremacy and systemic racism and things like that. And we put that statement out to our entire list. And the number of unsubscribes or negative responses that got an immediate uh, unsubscribe on our end, we were like, wow, this is a great yeah. way to curate <laughs> the people that we want to be working with and interacting with as part of our community. I mean, it was amazing. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was like a very successful way to weed out the people who you wanted in your network. No, but it's so important. And I think, again, especially in the travel space, I think that that's something, you know, when we think about travel as vacation, we have to stop doing that because somebody's travel is somebody else's home. That's just a fact. That's just a reality of this. And if you think about it any other way, you're not doing yourself any service. And so if you're not interested in getting politically involved and standing up for anti-racism and standing up for justice, what are you doing trying to learn about somebody else's culture and somebody else's life? I mean, those things go hand in hand. And and for me, I've always said that travel really only consists of three things. Travel consists of challenging your preconceptions, trying something new, and putting yourself in a position of discomfort. If you can challenge yourself, if you can try something new, if you can get uncomfortable, if you can do that five minutes away from your house, in my opinion, that's much more of a travel experience than going 2,000 miles away and not feeling any of those things. Travel is about challenging yourself, about stepping outside of the things that you know, about being willing to lean into things that make you uncomfortable. And what better place to do that than talking about these social justice issues that are happening in our own country, getting yourself in a position of saying, I don't know all of the answers here, but I'm going to find out and I have done something wrong and I've seen and I want to do better at this. To me, that is a form of traveling. And I think anybody who wants to travel, that's the muscle that you need to work. 
is 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 putting yourself in that position over and over again and making yourself better for it. And that's the only way you do make yourself better for it is exercising it. I think that's a really important concept about the fact that as we travel, we are absolutely not simply observers or simply people that are taking things in. Everywhere we go, we are making some kind of contribution, positive or negative, or perhaps both at the same time, but we are making an impact on the places that we go. And even if people, folks are well-intentioned, right? Right? They're not mm-hmm. intending to do something, but we have all kinds of things that are ingrained in us through our years of socialization and you know the cultures that we come from and all that kind of stuff. So what tips do you have for folks in their world travels to be more thoughtful and just conscientious of you know travel as a political act? I think the first thing you want to do is do your research. Do your research about the organizations that you're supporting, that you're purchasing from, and make sure that you're aligned with the way that they do business. I'm not necessarily just talking about like, look into their politics and, you know, what political party they're affiliated with. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, how are they running their business? How are they supporting the local community? How many locals are they employing? Are they employing them gainfully? You know, make sure that this is a company that you feel really good about supporting. And there are all sorts of places that you can go and look, whether it's message boards, whether it's websites, whether it's social good websites. I think that's the first thing that you can do. The second thing I would do is to encourage people to slow down in your travels. You know, I think sometimes we get so caught up in seeing every single little thing that we miss all of the little, very important details along the way. And if you give yourself time to go to a place and just digest it for a little while, even if it's just a day, you know, give yourself a day to just sit and people watch and observe and put yourself in that position of just looking around you. I think you can take so much information about what that place is really like and learn a lot more. And by the way, I think it's also important for us to, you know, we talk, we're talking right now about, you know, the fact that when you go places, you're not just going passively, that you you have a role. I also believe at the same time that when you go to a place, you are only there temporarily. And if you feel like you're going to be able to completely change culture that has existed for hundreds or thousands of years, you're probably wrong. You're probably not going to change pretty much any of it. So the best thing you can do is is have conversations and learn from it and make yourself better and open yourself up to different ways of doing things that you might not have seen before, because that is going to be so much more for you than going in kind of guns blazing, trying to fix something or change something or rebuild something or do something differently because you think it's the right thing. I think challenging your own upbringing and your own perspective and your own reality is half the part of traveling to a different place. It's just seeing how somebody else might have lived a life completely different from yours. And still here we are all alive and all, you know, meeting each other. And um, so it a lot of that has to do with just your perspective and how you're going into a place and how you're evaluating it from day one. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the other thing to consider, right? Is that we're talking, we just talked on the one hand about folks that are, you know, not comfortable somehow supporting Black Lives Matter and other types of progressive causes. On the flip side, though, right, is the concept of the white savior complex, mm-hmm. right? And like some of these types of things that are oriented towards what you're talking about. And I'm wondering about for that kind of thing, how do you talk about that and approach that? And what advice would you give to travelers that might have those sort of in ingrained tendencies. 
Such a great question and so many different places that we can take that. So much good literature about the white savior complex that I could not even begin to summarize. But I think that a lot of it comes from a place of wanting to help. And if you can take a step back and think about, you know, why is it that I want to help? Why is it that I think my way might be better? And sometimes the best thing you can do to to be helpful is to support systems that are already working that are on the ground. And that's where, you know, talking about volunteerism versus just giving money. I worked for many years in Haiti when I was doing the One Laptop Per Child program, actually. So after Sao Tome, I ended up doing more work for One Laptop Per Child. I went to Haiti. I, my first time was just after their 2010 earthquake. Um, my husband is Haitian-American. So now I travel to Haiti, not for volunteering, but to visit family. And a lot of my perspective has changed over the years of working in Haiti, which is a country that has been so filled with charities and American service projects and well-intentioned, what they call do-gooders, that have actually, in a lot of ways, paralyzed the country from being able to pick itself up. Um, and I say this all very cautiously because I'm also not, you know, like here to to pass like a full, you know, judgment on an entire country. We already know how problematic that is. But to say that there are incredible organizations in Haiti that are Haitian-born organizations run by Haitian entrepreneurs that are employing Haitian people that are changing from the ground up their communities and making them better. Um, Haiti Partners, based out of Petchenville, is one of those, actually, which I think everyone should look up, an incredible organization. Um, and it is supporting those ones that makes a really big difference, recognizing what you're capable of, what you're good at. Just because you have a Western education or a college degree doesn't mean that you should be practicing medicine or running an orphanage or constructing something. If you don't have those skills, I think sometimes we think like, oh, I'm just going to help. Sometimes your help can be very hurtful and not just emotionally hurtful, but like could physically hurt somebody. And instead, you know, finding those grassroots organizations that are on the ground that are focused on locals and supporting them financially supporting them that can be the best thing that you can do for a place in order to help but yeah it's very tricky because i think there's a, a lot of times when we as travelers see something that's sort of shocking or contrary to what we're used to the first thing we want to do is help and we don't think about you know i remember um when i my first time in Haiti, we were sitting down with the founder of Haitian Partners, and he said, you wouldn't believe how many shipments of sweaters and hair dryers we've gotten. And he's like, it is 95 right now in Haiti, and nobody has electricity. We don't need sweaters and hair dryers. If you had just sent us the money that you had used to ship those things, that would have gone way farther because now we have all this garbage that we have to do something with. And we've just paid all these customs fees for these materials. And it's such a burden for us. And I think we're so in the space of my good intention and passing it off to you. We don't think about what do you actually need and the importance of that. That's so awesome. Uh, really, really, really important 
framework there and insights. And I want to also ask you now to talk about Wonderful, is, which is a community that you have been building since all the way back in your time in South Tome, although I know it didn't start as a community building project, but it has evolved into one. So can you just sort of give us the, you know, the mission, the purpose, the vision, and what it has now evolved into and all of the different amazing aspects of Wonderful and the different components of what you offer and provide? Wonderful helps all women travel the world. That's the basic definition of what we do. Now, here's how we do it. We don't do it by arming women with pepper spray and sending them on their way. We do do it in this really interesting three-pronged approach. The first is through travelers. We connect travelers to each other. We give them a forum to share their experiences with each other. We have a global membership community that you can tap into with women from all around the world where you can get tips and advice. We have daily virtual events where you can meet other women from around the world, build your travel savvy. We have chapters in 50 cities. So any place that you travel to, you can tap into the local chapter and have instant access to somebody to have dinner with. We have a global hosting network with people that you can stay with. We're making it easier for you to go somewhere, whether on your own or with somebody else, by accessing a live network of other women in real time who can guide you. But that's not all we're doing because just helping the traveler is not going to make travel better for all women. We also have to look at the side of the industry. What are some of the roadblocks in the travel industry that are keeping women from being appropriately represented? Women of, again, all intersections, not just white, able-bodied Western women, all women. And so because of that, Wonderful does a number of things on the business side. We run the WITS Travel Creator and Brand Summit, which is a leading conference for content creators, influencers, people with grassroots voices to speak directly to the industry about topics that matter and to build partnerships so that they can work together and, and amplify these really powerful voices. We do a number of activism, kind of consulting, speaking out. You mentioned the Moving Forward Anti-Racism Town Hall, our anti-oppression toolkit, these topics that are often given, you know, one breakout session at a conference. Those are in the main stage of our conferences, of how we can make travel more inclusive, of how we can disrupt the travel ecosystem to be better for all of us, to um, to make to move travel forward and to make travel better. And so by combining our our industry efforts and our content creator efforts with our traveler and consumer efforts, we're basically creating this world where women are lifted, where women are supported, where we're feeling like we have access to the resources that we need and where we have access to each other whenever we need each other. That's so amazing. I'm such a big fan of what you're doing. I think your content is amazing. I think the team and the community that you have uh, assembled is amazing and such inspiring stuff that you're producing. I also want to ask you about, you know, a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and especially your entrepreneurial journey as a recent mother. And I know you have blogged a lot about being what you call a startup mama and how that actually helped your entrepreneurial career. And you've done a lot of amazing content, I think, on tips for being productive and efficient as a startup mama and how people can be better allies to startup mamas. And I would love for you to just share a little bit about that part of your personal business journey. Absolutely. Well, and a couple of things you might not know, Matt. Number one, I just bought a cafe. Number two, 
I just launched a coaching program. And so I'm kind of running three businesses, I think three right now. And I also have two kids. So I have a four-year-old daughter and I have a five-month-old daughter. And it's funny because operating in the startup ecosystem, we often think about startups as, and I remember this, I actually remember when I was pregnant for the first time, I had an investor who was talking to me and she said very, you know, in like a very friendly way, she's like, Beth, I'm a mom too, but I want to tell you right now, being an entrepreneur and being a mother is really, really, really hard. You're going to have to pick one, like pick one to focus on. And I was like, pick one to focus on. Like, I can't just like magically not be a mom. Like, it's not possible to pick one. And if we're living in a world where that's the reality, that's not the world I want to live in. And I think when we think about startups, the predominant narrative too is, okay, you're going to be a startup entrepreneur, which means you're going to work round the clock. You're going to eat ramen um, because you're not going to have any other money for anything else. You're not going to have any time. You're not going to see your family. Well, when you're a parent, you can't do that. You're raising your family. You have to feed them. To suggest that that is the only way to build a business is incredibly problematic and irresponsible. That means that only certain people can start businesses. And those people are incredibly privileged. They're often men. They're often white. And we're going to keep perpetuating that narrative and blocking out anybody who doesn't fit into that category. So first of all, we have to stop talking about this as like, this is what starting a business is. You're going to starve and you're going to work 24 hours a day because if that's what we're expecting people to do, we're never going to have really innovative businesses because those businesses are always going to be created by the same person who's the person that can fit into those categories. I actually think when I was pregnant, it launched my entrepreneurial career for a few reasons. First, it taught me to delegate. It taught me to think about things from a bird's eye perspective because the day I found out I was pregnant, I realized I have, at that point, eight months to figure out how to make this business go on without me. I will physically not be able to run this business for at least a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months. So I need to engineer a business that can exist on its own. And that's the holy grail of entrepreneurship anyway, right? You're supposed to build a business that can go on without you. That's the whole point of it. So I think becoming a parent actually gave me this really great perspective of, I cannot look at this as you know, what can Beth do to build this business? It's what can Beth engineer that other people can do to make a business that works and that can work independently on its own? What kind of people do I hire? How do I talk with them? What products and services do we do? What do we not do? What is not a focus of ours right now? And I think being a parent has just, you know, now that my kids are actually out of the womb, It's furthered that because I I do have limited time. And with that limited time, and now, you know, I, I somebody on a recent interview asked me, like, well, you know, how do you do it all if you're running like this cafe and you're running this business, three businesses, two kids? And I said, there is one sort of mixed blessing about running multiple businesses and having children. And that is 
you are forced to prioritize. You have to be a prioritizing machine. You have to know exactly what is important and what is not important in every moment. And I wish that anybody starting a business could go into it with that level of prioritization because there's so much crap that we spend our time on that we don't actually need to do at all because we think we're supposed to, because we don't identify somebody else who could do it. You know, we're just thinking about it, me, me, me. We waste a lot of time doing that. When that time is pulled from you, if this is something that you really care about, which some people, they're like, screw the entrepreneurship life. You know, that isn't for me. That's fine. But if running a business for you is something that you really do care about, you have to figure out how to prioritize it. And I think in that way, starting your own business can be one of the most forgiving careers, actually, because I run my own schedule. If I'm having a rough day, I can reschedule something. If I have to feed my baby during a meeting and somebody has a problem with that, I don't want you to do business with you anyway. I don't care about you because you don't care about the reality of the life that I'm living. So I think there's a lot of power to that too, you know, and not every career can you just come at it with that attitude, but you can with starting a business and with entrepreneurship. And on that note, let me appreciate the fact that you have prioritized being on the Maverick <laughs> show today. That actually really, really means a lot to me. And out of respect for your time, let me ask you one more question before we move into the lightning round and wrap this up. Beth, at this point in your travel journey, why do you continue to travel? What do you get out of it? What does travel mean to you? Travel makes me better. I think it's so easy to get lost in yourself, to think about the way you see things, the way you process things, what your life is like, the challenges that you have, the shortcomings, the successes, et cetera. And I think travel is the one time where you can step outside of your own self all the time and learn about somebody else's reality and somebody else's world and somebody else's priorities and somebody else's existence. And yes, that comes back to you because you're in the state of learning and taking and growing. But I think there are so many things in my travels that have made me a better person, that have given me insights, and in a lot of ways have made me less stressed out about things that I thought were really important and suddenly realized they weren't actually so I think that travel gives us a chance to improve ourselves. I am one of those crazy people that thinks that travel actually does have the power to change the world. I really think that, I think travel can can be a force for bad. I do believe that. I believe that bad travel can support the wrong organizations. It can exploit people. It can be dangerous. It can be hurtful to local communities, but it can also lift communities. It can connect people. It can connect us to each other's experiences. It can give us first-person perspectives on other people's realities. It is the best diplomacy mechanism. It is the best mechanism, in my experience, to create things like peace, things like world peace, I believe, are achieved through travel and through seeing that stuff. And that's why I think everybody should do it, because to be able to step into somebody else's life for a day and to see how they run a beautiful life in a completely different way from yours, it gives you so much more tolerance and acceptance for other people that I wish all of us could have. And that's why I think travel should be something that we're all able to do. 
What an amazing answer and a great place to conclude and move on to the final part of the interview. Beth, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years you'd most recommend people check out? Okay. Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World. It was recently put out by Dr. Anu Taranath, and it will completely change the way you look at travel. 100% recommendation to read. Amazing. I'm going to read it right away. All right, Beth, who is one person currently alive today that you've never met you'd most love to have dinner with? Richard Branson. That is a person whose mind I just want to dig into for like five seconds. That's an awesome answer. (laughs) If you could go back in time, knowing everything that you know now, and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Beth? I would just say, keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry about what other people are thinking so much, and be really patient with yourself. Awesome advice. All right, of all the places that you've been, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you would most recommend other people check out? Okay. I completely agree with your assessment of Brazil. I think Brazil is an amazing place to visit. I also really love traveling to Turkey, especially Istanbul, I think is a a fascinating destination and place to learn. I also went to southeastern Turkey, which I think is amazing. Urfa and Mardin particularly are, are incredible places. And then I think when the time is right and when the politics make it safe enough right now is not the best time, but traveling to Haiti, I think should happen. Every American should go there. It's uh, our neighbor country and we should all see it. Amazing. Last question, Beth, what are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been highest on your list. You'd most love to go. Japan, Nepal, and I think India. I've never been to any of those three places. Awesome picks. All right, Beth, I want you to let folks know at this point, how can they find you, follow you, connect with Wonderful, come into your amazing community? And what kind of stuff does Wonderful have coming up that people can plug into? Yeah, so find us at she'swonderful.com. It's She's Wonderful on all of our channels. If you are a content creator or a member of the industry, sign up for WITS. You can visit the website at witsummit.com. That's our travel creator and brand summit. We have a major festival that we have just launched called Wanderfest. It's the first time we're doing this. We're doing it in downtown New Orleans in March 2022. It's the first major outdoor travel festival by and for women. We have amazing speakers on stage like Patricia Schultz, the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, Onika Raymond, Chef Crystal from the TV show Chopped. She's the first indigenous chef that was on Chopped. We're doing yoga. We have a women-owned business marketplace. We're doing a parade down the French Quarter. All really fun. It's called Wanderfest. Wanderfestevent.com is the URL for that. And Matt pointed out that we also are doing a trip to Antarctica in 2023. And it's a women and allies trip. So anyone can go. We have 100 spots reserved on the Ocean Endeavor with Intrepid Travel, which is an incredible organization to travel with. They're very socially minded. They have a whole carbon offset that they do for everyone who travels. They have scientists that are on board that tell you all about the geology and the biology on Antarctica. So join us for 
for that. If you go to she'swonderful.com slash Antarctica, you can sign up. It's expensive because it's a trip to Antarctica, but it's actually very affordable for what Antarctica is. And you'll go with 99 other amazing, wonderful people that you can see. So check that out. If you want to follow me, I am Maximum Beth on all social channels. My website is bethsantos.com. And there you can find out about the prosperity circle that I run, which is a weekly coaching and accountability circle for travel businesses or community-minded businesses. And if you're ever in Boston, come stop by Ula Cafe in JP. It's ulacafe.com. That's it. Amazing. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes. So just go to themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode. You're going to see all of that in one place. Beth, you are amazing and you are doing amazing things. Thank you so much for coming on The Maverick Show. Thanks for having me, Matt. This has been really fun. Appreciate it. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.